You have tuned into WERALP Arlington, Virginia, 96.7 FM, streaming and on demand at WERA.FM. I am your host, Bumi Akinisotu, and this is What in the World. In case you haven't heard, this is a show all about global politics and why it matters to those of us living here in the United States. And the dots aren't always connected or clear, so it's my job and the guests' job who come on the show to make this stuff relatable and to connect the dots so that you can sound smart the next time you're at your next family gathering. But by now, you've all heard about several crises uh, happening. One is, of course, at the U.S.-Mexico border, which uh, President Donald Trump announced a few weeks ago. And another uh, that has not uh, ceased to hit the headlines has been around Venezuela and the humanitarian crisis happening in the country. Words have been traded on Twitter between American and Venezuelan elected officials. There have been several announcements of sanctions by the current administration. And as of late, uh, there has been talk of uh, the potential of amnesty for some Venezuelans who are trying to flee the country. So what is going on? How did Venezuela get to this point where they are $140 billion in debt? (laughs) Who's involved? Who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? And of course, why should you care about any? of this stuff when there's so much happening in the United States. So here to break it all down is Dr. Vanessa Newman. She is fantastic. Welcome to the show, Dr. Newman, Vanessa. Thank you. Thank you. Call me Vanessa. Thank you. Awesome. So uh, Vanessa, just a little bit about you. She's an authority on Latin American politics and security, particularly as it relates to terrorism, unlawful trade and international law. She's got a book which I'm adding to my book list. Oh, good. I'm going to add it to my book list. I have to sign it to you. I'm ready. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Uh, Blood Profits, How Americans Unwittingly Fund Terror. That's some like hurtful feelings. I know, I know. They figured it would sell more copies probably that way. Yeah, yeah. You got my eyes percolated. I'm like, yeah, okay. All right, what's this about? She's done some pretty serious work with the International Police Organization. Interpol, yeah, Interpol's a big deal. Yeah, it is a big deal. Everybody knows them from their red notices, yes. right? Which is that you uh, they issue arrest warrants and you're, and when you're wanted internationally, <laughs> you know, and you go through any airport, they're supposed to arrest you. But, I, I hope yeah. I never, ever... Yeah, you, you don't you don't want to. And they operate differently from the way most people understand. They're more like an intel sharing organization, so they they do rely on the local police to collaborate with them. Got it. They themselves don't have like a police force a that police arrests force, you. Right. So it's uh, just like a network. It's a network. Police right. They have liaisons all over the world. Network. Exactly. Ooh, child. That's a lot yeah. of power. Yeah. Fun stuff. So she's also worked with the Pentagon uh, through the Department of Defense, U.S. Special Ops. Again, big deal. Yeah. <laughs> the State Department and has spoken all around the world and has appeared on numerous shows, uh, including uh, Fox Business, Al Jazeera, many, many others. So I'm sure you have seen her or will see her uh, because Venezuela is such a, again, a hot topic. And she has her own company called Asymmetrica, yep. um, where she does consulting to other companies on political risks in other countries and you sort of build networks and connect people and that means you have the bag you have all the secrets oh, you know where the bodies are you. yeah she knows where I'm, I'm gonna get you to do my elevator Vanessa, pitch I would not I, I'm afraid I don't know if I want you to know about me Vanessa <laughs> she might be so so um, has anyone ever told you that you're like the real world Olivia Pope yes I have gotten that before <laughs> I, I'll take that as a compliment it is a compliment yeah, Olivia definitely. Pope was ba- I can't say I can't swear but she was she was 
She's bad. bad. She's yeah. bad. She's bad. She's I'll bad. Take that. Yeah, like definitely. nobody messed with Olivia Pope. I would not yeah. mess with you. Although, if I need some information on some people, I might hit you up. Okay, definitely. <laughs> we can we can track it down. Tell so, me what you need, <laughs> um, Vanessa. You have had an interesting life story. Uh, I have to say, it's it's quite impressive. And um, I know that you have a multicultural background. Mm-hmm. You were born in Caracas. Mm-hmm. You're a Venezuelan American. Your mother was from Czechoslovakia. The other way around. No, my dad was from Czechoslovakia. Got it. My father was born in Prague, and his family escaped. First of all. A lot of the family died during World War II. Uh, They were killed by the Nazis. They died in the camps. They were sort of somewhat, they were culturally Jewish, but they didn't, they weren't practicing Jews, but the Nazis made no distinctions. My grandfather and his brother went into hiding, survived the war, then thought, great, we've been liberated by Russia. When they realized that was not the case, uh, then they fled the Soviets and ended up in Venezuela. My father was a two-year-old child when they arrived in a slum area of Caracas and they had to start over the business that they had learned in Czechoslovakia, start from scratch. And so my father grew up as a Venezuelan, speaking Spanish, but speaking Czech at home. <laughs> uh, very complicated. And then when he was 17, he met my mom, who's an all-American girl from New York City, Catholic, and she went to spend the summer down in Caracas with her Dutch godparents who worked with Shell Oil, and they said, we don't really know what to do with a 17-year-old American girl, but they said, we know someone who has a son about your age. Oh, the hookup. Yeah, so it was a hookup. (laughs) So my parents are the American girl and the sort of Czech boy met in Caracas in a blind date. So it's very sort of... Personal slash geopolitical yeah, mixture. It's like going all on of there. the. It's the perfect timing too, right? Because yeah. all of the things happening in the world at that time. It's yeah. sort of they're in this space and they found love. And they found they found love. And, and they then found love. they dated all summer. And then they're like, oh, summer's over. And they're like, but wait, my father was in school in the U.S. at that time. So he's like, we can continue dating. I, you know. So, I like that man. I I like men like that. Uh, yes, exactly. I like I'll come like to that. you. Yes. At the end of the summer. I'm not going to let distance separate us. <laughs> exactly. Awesome. And you, so you were raised in Caracas. I was raised in Caracas. I was raised in Caracas full time until I was 10. But my mom being American, she would, you know, fly me up to visit the relatives. But I was sort of that weird child who spoke not very good English (laughs) to be like, and I'd get very excited when I'd watch Sesame Street and they'd have like a little segment in Spanish and they'd be like, abierto, you could cerrado. Understand. Like, hey! And I'd go nuts with this sort of abierto, cerrado. You too know? funny, too funny. And, and, and then, um, and then I, I did uh, come here when I was 10 and started going to school here. My mom brought me to go to school and then I'd go back to Caracas to visit my family. So at that point when I was 10 I, I sort of split my time and split between both places between both places you sound yeah. like so our last guest um, was from Nigeria and he, he describes it as being a third culture kid right yeah so you're the kid who really doesn't you have you you identify with multiple places yeah. speak multiple languages you have a different culture maybe that of your parents but like you you can fit into the American culture you can fit into the culture of your parents you can fit into the culture of where you actually live which might be different than where your parents are from. Exactly. And so you're sort of like this truly like a global citizen. Exactly. <laughs> and and the mixture kind of creates its own little subculture as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Would you say that's what um, sort of uh, is related to why you're interested in this world of 
terrorism, like illicit trade and politics? Do you think that that identity and that experience of your grandparents and your parents sort of informs that interest? Yeah, I think so. I think so, definitely, because I have a sense of sort of um, concept of freedom, of individual dignity, of people having a chance at making a better life for themselves and what it means to like buy a house, have a house, have a job, spend your money, go to school, hope for a better future and build something, you know, for your kids um, is, you know, these are these are sort of capitalist ideas, but they're human rights ideas. But they're also your government is supposed to give you the tools. Sorry, I'm lapsing into my philosophy here. <laughs> no, it's fine. But it's supposed to give you the tools to, as we say in philosophy, to le- give you a life you have reason to value. So you decide what your values are, and you're supposed to have the tools to build that life that you want. Yeah. It's not the life I want or yeah. your neighbor wants. They, these can be different lives. But you are supposed to be able to have your life, your stuff, your values, and move forward. And, you know, when you see things like corruption, uh, they're really sticking you in a system where it benefits a small elite. Um, You can't get out of it if you're not part of the corrupt system, if you're on the wrong side of it. You're not in the little elite clique. Um, It's your schools that get impacted, your roads that don't get built. It's always the housing of the poor that Mm -hmm. falls in the mudslides or the earthquakes because... They weren't built to standard because the money got stolen. Right. <laughs> you know, so that's because of corruption. So, yeah. and then, um, so I got interested in that and then understanding also how bad guys connect. So they'll connect mm. through corruption and they'll connect also through a friend of a friend mm. or a cousin or diaspora networks. Um, and, you know, I got interested also watching what was happening in Venezuela, which we'll get to in, in a second, and being like, why are these guys working with these other guys? Mm. What are they doing here? This <laughs> is not my culture. This is not their thing. And why why are we suddenly defending their interests or yeah, views? Yeah. Um, so so uh, asking those questions i guess is what led what led to that yeah and it's sort of a concern of like on the one hand being fascinated by what connects different people of different cultures and then on the other hand having this sort of deeply felt sense of sort of right and wrong and people's ability to have a to get ahead yeah to, to build the life for themselves maybe it's because my grandparents were refugees yeah um and you know my mom also moved to this you know foreign culture to venezuela to be with my dad and had some struggles adjusting there right. you know that that uh, all of that um i think has sort of fed into this fascination and maybe the sensibility and and just ask a lot of questions yeah yeah it's a common theme on this show with all of my guests and certainly with myself who has parents who are from another country right i think naturally you're like wait what is going on over there why are we sending so much money every month to the family right i think every person i've talked to who has an immigrant family or a refugee family has the same curiosity about the world about what exactly is going on right and their careers speak to that yeah and uh, you know the the relationship of diasporas to the home country is one of the things i explore in my book and i've just been thinking about a lot lately particularly with venezuela but also of i you know the turning point in my career was some uh, research that i did in lebanon and 
they have like four times four times more Lebanese outside Lebanon than inside. I mean, they're one of the world's great diaspora populations. Venezuela was never like that. We mm. always stayed at home. It's only because of this crisis that suddenly yeah. we've had this exodus. It's a completely new experience. Um, but but when you look at diaspora networks and just seeing what what has happened with Venezuela, it, it now the diaspora has become sort of the activist in getting the global attention put on Venezuela. Because, you know, you have the one level of the refugees who are, uh, you know, poor and desperate and fleeing their feet, which have made it a problem for their receiving countries because there's so many of them straining their economy. And then when you have the people who are better positioned with elite jobs and, you know, well-connected, they've mm -hmm. become activists. Mm -hmm. They're like, they're knocking on the door of their international institutions that they work for saying, we've got to do, do something. something. You've yeah. got to do something about yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, the other thing we see is in my work is, um, you know, criminals and traffickers and money launderers also use diaspora <laughs> yeah, networks. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. as you were saying, you have this guilt about sending money back yeah, home. Yeah, yeah. And you'll see it also like a lot of terrorist groups will use like the cousin who's over there who sends money back. Um, and I'm very sympathetic to remittances. Latin America is all about remittances. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you always have like the good side and the bad, the bad side. side. You it, know, there's a there's and it's a very human and complicated story. Yeah. Yeah. So you're intrigued by the bad guys. I'm intrigued by the bad guys. I yeah, can, I can feel that. Um, that's a great segue into sort of the U.S. Venezuela relationships. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people who are new to this topic sort of landed on this thinking like, oh, this just happened. It's just a couple of years old. It's like, right. no, no. This has been happening for a long time. And specifically, um, President Maduro in, in late January, uh, this is when I think everybody sort of started thinking about what's what's going on. Uh, President Maduro uh, ordered the American diplomats to leave Venezuela. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in like 72 hours, it was yeah. like, get out, get your stuff and like, go now. Yeah, that was it was. So that was really interesting <laughs> to watch if you're, you know, with the opposition as I I'm aligned with the opposition. I mean, we know I'm, I'm on record as not not liking Maduro. <laughs> what happened was Maduro had this like farce of an election last year, mm -hmm. right? I mean, he was already very unpopular. It already had like years of huge protests, you know, political leaders in prison, you know, 13,000 extrajudicial killings, torture. I mean, it's just become horrible. So then he had this election in May when our elections aren't in May, our elections are in December. So that was already, you know, uh, he at a time when he thought the opposition was particularly weak. And then it was like, in Spanish, we say three bald cats, you know, came out to vote. You know, I it's like we had seven million people. I'm like, what? Seven million people? <laughs> Has anybody seen the photographs? I mean, it's just one empty election hall after another. I mean, eventually some people were busted. Anyway, so the entire world came out and said, come on, that's not an election. <laughs> I mean, you know, and they said it at the time. So it's not even like they're going with the American line now. Right. There was, was like, like 60 young coaches. They're like, no, man, that's not, that doesn't count. So then when he swore himself in on January 10th, they're like, no, that's not a swearing that's in. That's not the way this works, dude. That's not the way this works, dude. Exactly. You can't just say, I'm, I'm president. I'm president. And then so he said, listen, according to our constitution, you know, the president of the National Assembly, which it had been for a long time, the only remaining vestige of a democratic, you know, organ in, in Venezuela. It's like their Congress. It's I like understand. our Congress, okay. right? So we have our Congress. Yeah. So we've had like two parallel systems for a long time, the real one and then 
and then the fake one, which is the follows the Cuban model, which is so we had so back in 2015, our Congress, like I guess the regime wasn't like paying attention, maybe they got a little bit overconfident, but the v- people of Venezuela like voted in the opposition in a supermajority, like they got two thirds, they got and they swept in and the regime obviously just didn't see it coming. Right. And it was a real it was a real vote. Right. I mean, and then after that, they're like, oh, we're gonna kick out three of the and ironically, they kicked out three of the representatives for the indigenous population, because mm. we also have like Indian yeah, native, yeah. what you would call Native American, you right. know, indigenous, indigenous. Pop, indigenous mm. which is, we have lots of different tribes in Venezuela and different areas. So kicked out there so that they would lose the supermajority, mm. because the supermajority enables you to write a new constitution, et cetera, et cetera. And then after that, they're like, we don't like this Congress. We're going to set up another one. Right. I mean, if you told the story in American terms, yeah. <laughs> it would be really clear. It would be like, what if Trump said, I don't, you know, that you, you win, you know, you win a supermajority in 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 uh, in the midterm elections, and he says, "I don't like these guys. I'm setting up a I'm new setting Congress. up a new Congress. Forget like, your I vote. Mean, I forget your vote. I mean, so this is basically what happened in Venezuela. Mm. So then, when you decide that, dude, you're not the president because you didn't win an election and your term is up. So his term was up on January 10th, and then he said, "Well, actually, according to the Constitution, which these." guys drafted. I mean, it's Chavez's constitution that Mm -hmm. was drafted. And nobody's disputing that, the validity of that. Everybody's abiding by that. Well, we are. Uh, Maduro isn't. And they said, um, you know, then it comes to the president of the National Assembly, of of the Congress, of the legitimate Congress, the one that he keeps trying to sideline. And that's Juan Guaido. So then when the Americans said, yeah, we're with that. And, you know, and so did, you know, 50 other countries said, we're with that. Yeah. Maduro said, well, get your diplomats out but the americans said yeah but you, we're not the president not the pre- so you're, you don't have the power to kick <laughs> right, out right, our right, diplomats right. you're not really the president you're not really the president so guaido says we can stay and we're gonna stay so then he threatened force and we're like and our attitude is like pass the popcorn yeah who's gonna be the first guy to knock on the door of the american embassy with a weapon yeah i mean yeah because that's not going to be, I that's not going to end well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I and I saw that um, Senator Marco Rubio, I think it was, had said, you know, um, if we if we left, we'd basically be giving legitimacy. Yes. To uh, Maduro. Because it's like, right. OK, we concede. You actually are. So so he was like, like, nah, stay put, diplomats. <laughs> right. Exactly. Because <laughs> he's not president. Exactly. <laughs> this other person is. Um, They have not, the Venezuelans and the um, Americans have not had they had kicked out each other's diplomats oof, years ago <laughs> um uh, so they had what we call a charge d'affaires um i'm not sure whether the americans i don't think the americans have yet assigned a full ambassador down there yet uh, we have the special envoy the special the, the, envoy uh, yeah but he's elliot yeah but he's a special envoy is like guy in dc who's in charge of yeah managing the coordinating, situation yeah, coordinating yeah, 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 everything yeah, yeah. but we do have an ambassador here in dc that's recognized uh by the americans by the americans so folks, that okay. but so that's so that's good so we're you know we're getting, <laughs> we're getting there there's some things that's still in yeah. place so um th- there's a lot to be said about the history of, of venezuela mm-hmm. we won't go through everything but um i i would actually tell my listeners to go back to the cuba episode mm-hmm. If you want a better understanding of Latin America, in particular U.S. relations, there's it, there's this communist Cold War era history mm-hmm. that that shapes this crisis or this 
situation. Oh, absolutely. It's like Cold War redux. It's like, re- yeah, it's like the Cold War all over again. Right. And I think the, the word I saw was like the Cold War redo or something like that or right. whatever, part two. Yeah. So, uh, Vanessa, for people who aren't as familiar, can you just give us like high level what historically has been the relationship between the United States and Venezuela. What's it been like, say, since like the 80s onward? So Venezuela was actually very close with the U.S. They had a great relationship. And Venezuela was actually always very anti-socialist and anti-communist. And you had great coordination and even military to military coordination, great diplomatic relations, great business relations, really up until Chavez really came along where it bubbled up to the surface. What you had going on below the surface is that you had since 1958, which is when we got rid of their last uh, military dictatorship, which was a right-wing dictatorship, but it was very similar to Maduro dictatorship in the way it operated, sort of very just brutal. And then when the people rose up, they're like, Mr. President, (laughs) time for you to get on an airplane out of here, which is what we're hoping will happen again here. But after that, what happened was you had reached this accord, which was called the Pacto Punto Fijo, Punto Fijo Pact, which is the uh, the parties came to a power sharing agreement. And they said, we will never again have a dictatorship. This this is how we're going to run a democracy. Uh, we're going to come to agreements and we're going to, you know, share power and we'll put people from the different parties in the cabinet. The people who got excluded from this were the socialist parties and the communist parties. Now, in Venezuela, I want to, you know, take this opportunity to, you know, Guaido and and whatever is being portrayed as a right wing. There is no right wing party in Venezuela. It is all left wing. It is all shades of left wing. Mm. Um, We've just never had a very right wing party and there is none now. And left wing meaning when we think in our terms here in America, you mean more liberal. Liberal. Right, liberal, okay. left-leaning, because you always have an awareness of marginalization, of uh, you don't have overt racism in Latin America, but you do have different ethnicities. You have We have a lot of different shades of brown, right? You have some people look very European, and then you have very African descent. Then you have more mestizo, which is, as I said, the different shades of brown. And and they all kind of, you will have distinctions with between the groups, but it's a different type of dynamic than white versus black mm-hmm. in the U.S. or in other countries like in Europe or whatever. So it's, so it's different. So there's always that sort of awareness. And even the Christian Democrat Party is still would be considered left liberal. of center, liberal mm-hmm. by, certainly by American standards. Uh, but the communist parties were sort of left out. And then you had, uh, and a lot of the, uh, Chavez groups uh, came from his supporters came from a part in the western Venezuela that was on the border with Colombia and in Colombia you did have Marxist guerrillas mm. fighting the government really in a war against the government the longest running civil war and they were heavily involved in drug trafficking that's the FARC and across the border region between Venezuela and Colombia you always had like some sympathizers yeah So you had a hotbed of drug trafficking, a hotbed of Marxist guerrilla terrorist activity trying to overthrow the government. And then for some reason, you also had in that same region, a big Middle Eastern diaspora of like Lebanese, also with different. And if you look at a lot of Chavez's people and even some of the people who are still with Maduro, 
a lot of them came from that. And you had a, quite a few people of like the vice, former vice president, Tarek Al-Aysami, is Syrian Druze and his wife is Lebanese. Mm. And they come from this sort of, they're like princelings of yeah. certain tribes mm. in the Middle East. And they're also very anti-American. They yeah. come from a very radical, right, right. small group. And, and it just became this sort of little pot where all of these different strains mixed together. Um, and they tapped into a vein that was where you had a lot of Venezuelans uh, felt disenfranchised. Mm. The, this political um, deal that had been made in 1958 uh, became like great for the ruling parties and great for the people associated with them. But a lot of Venezuelans were not seeing... They weren't feeling like they had the opportunity to advance. Right. And you did have, as I said, you don't have overt racism, but you did feel that some of the groups that were either darker or more indigenous, right. either more African or more indigenous strain, felt that the rules were slightly rigged against them. Right, right. So they tapped into that, which not unfairly, by the way, mm-hmm. right? So they tapped into that and sort of tapped into that anger and said, you know, we are going to be liberated. Um, these ruling elites are too European influenced and uh, they're too pro-American. And it's the mixture of the European and the Americans that have mm. been victimizing us. And we will rise up and we will uh, tap into the myth of uh, Simon Bolivar, the liberator who liberated us from the Europeans. And we will bring that revolution to you again. So, two things. I think the gripes were legitimate, but I think that the uh, the Chavistas were taking advantage of this to foist themselves into power. And I suspected it at the time. And they just set themselves up as sort of a new kleptocratic yeah. elite. Elite, yeah. Even though that they... So the Chavistas are the folks who follow um, Hugo Chavez. Yeah. So they're, they, if I understand correctly, they're the folks who are the ones originally, they're like, look, we're tired of being oppressed, of not mm-hmm. having opportunity. We're going to take this thing into our own hands. We elect um, Hugo Chavez. Hugo Chavez then is like this charismatic, amazing leader. Yeah. Brings all kinds of social programs, which I want you to talk about in, yep. a, in a second. But he is the answer to this problem of um, oppression or marginalization on right. the part of others. Anybody, the the Mastizos, the uh, African um, people of African descent, et cetera, et cetera, right. in the country. He's at least in the 90s, if I understand correctly, he's the answer. Right. Exactly. So you had, so there was another thing. So we had a big riot in in Caracas. Well, it started in Caracas and it spread throughout Venezuela in 1989 called the Caracaso. So there was, so when the then president said, hey, this economic situation, the gasoline subsidies are unsustainable because like it's like the cheapest gasoline in the world. And he said, I'm going to hike the price of gasoline. When people go to work in the morning, they take these little like jitney buses. So instead of it's like privately owned buses, but that you know where they stop. So they got there and it was like double the price. And they got so angry, they flipped the buses over, set them on fire, started a riot. So the the poor who take these who take this mode of transportation to get to work came down from the hills and started looting. The army came out and shot them. So it became a, that the military was out defending the property of the rich right. against, against the, poor. the poor. Yeah. And many people died. The government never came clean about the number of people who died. The hospital reports are far greater than whatever the numbers the government was. So that was a terrible 
That was a terrible decision, right? And then off the back of that, they said, oh my God, that's it. The, you know, the, the fuse has been lit. And Chavez, so his great moment was when in 1992, February 4th, 1992, he had a coup attempt. And he lost. And the other military commanders took their towns, you know, and they were successful. But he failed. He was in charge of Caracas and he failed. And then they grabbed him and hauled him to a TV station and they said, call call off the coup <laughs> uh, here on live TV, mm. you know. And he said, uh, so he said, I'm calling off the coup. Our cause has not been successful por ahora, which means for now. For now. So that phrase of por ahora shade. was like, oh, oh my no, God, gosh. it just made a hero out of him. He was a revolutionary <laughs> hero. like, I'm coming back for more He's people. coming back for more. They threw him in prison. Then they let him out of prison. He gave media interviews in prison. So he became this sort of liberator hero because he took responsibility. And he also looked like your average Venezuelan. He sounded like your average Venezuelan. And at that point, a lot of the politicians, you know, were looking a little bit more like the European-influenced mm. elite. So they're like, he looks like us, he sounds like us, he gets our pain, and he's fighting. Right. So he became a hero. Yeah. And that just catapulted him. And today today happens to be, at the time of this recording, the sixth anniversary of, of his death. And I did not plan that. Oh, no. I did not. So the story, uh, that's amazing. Yeah. I know. When you told me that, I'm like, oh my I god, did not that's plan amazing. That. Yeah. So, so here's. So let me throw a little wrench in those oh, words. Oh goodness. Because so this is the sixth anniversary of when his death was announced. <laughs> but we think he died several months before. This sounds like a Nigerian story. <laughs> oh, is it? Yeah. <laughs> this is well, exactly yeah. What happens. <laughs> right. They're like hide the body. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the leader will just like disappear well <laughs> you don't know why until all of a sudden like he's dead it's like oh okay. wait hasn't he already what been dead for like four months well oh. so the story goes that then they tried to hire like some German scientists and have Chavez embalmed like you did with Lenin and the German scientists are like I know we're German and I know we're scientists but there's nothing <laughs> doing with this man you know oh. so. well well, well <laughs> we're gonna at least honor acknowledge the, yeah. the, the public holiday, the public day, I'm sure. The articles that I've read online exactly. all celebrate no, the day. Let's talk about the, the programs um, and how they were actually funded because I read some really interesting interesting you know facts about yeah. just how these social programs so uh so Hugo Chavez comes into power um he has um these social programs aimed at addressing the very things you talked about mm -hmm. with housing with medicine with mm -hmm. jobs with all sorts of really really good and important um, services and you mentioned in your introduction the, the role of government is to provide these things and it seemed yeah. like he did in fact you know make sure that the government delivered on its promise right um however there were some basic macroeconomic <laughs> principles. Yes, there were macro and micro. <laughs> micro <yeah>. and microeconomic <laughs> principles. And I didn't do too well in economics classes, <laughs> but there were certain things I just like knew. Like, you know, you shouldn't you shouldn't get into too much debt. Um, you should you should make sure you can pay your bills. Uh, so so can you just talk about his economic approach? Yeah. To funding his social programs and how his approach led to some of the economic woes that Venezuela is currently experiencing. Sure. So he set up uh, his his way of dealing with uh, poverty in, in Venezuela was 
um, and marginalization was through something called the programs are called misiones, so like mission, right? Mm-hmm. So you had uh, you had different missions to, but you had missions to set up housing, to build public housing, which was great, uh, and then he had m- missions to provide uh, healthcare, which sounds great, except for the doctors were Cuban. The other issue is with the building of public housing. It's it sounded good on paper. A lot of the projects were either not completed, there was a lot of corruption involved, some things did get built, some people did get houses. They were given away for free. I don't think they were properly cared for. You had, uh, you know, the people in charge of disbursing the money, uh, the money came from the oil company from PDVSA, which was basically ransacked at a time when oil prices were very high. They were not reinvesting in the ability of the oil company to produce more oil. Mm -hmm. So they were just taking all that and they were um, building this, um, you know, public housing programs that were also engaged in terrible corruption. So a lot of the money was lost. This was what we talked about in the beginning. And then they started also spending some of that money in doing similar projects overseas to sort of extend their um, their influence. They did it in Haiti. They did it in Nicaragua. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, you know, Cuba, Bolivia, Ecuador, other countries um, as a way to sort of curry favor with those countries. You know, they just squandered the money. So and it didn't work out very well. And then you had a lot of issues with businesses being expropriated. They just said, I don't like your policies. We're going to seize your factory and it would take away your house. I mean, most of my friends are farms were taken away and they just said, here, local village, you take it. Mm. And then they didn't farm. But for his from his perspective, uh, this sort of more socialist perspective, the idea is that there's a collective ownership of property rather than the private ownership of property. So would you say that in his mind, from his perspective by yes he took the land from someone else who owned it um but in his mind was he just basically saying this land belongs to the people like from his perspective it was right. like this is a communal i think that's what he was i approach. think that i think that was the plan the plan was a socialist plan yeah. of collective ownership the problem is i doesn't seem to work in practice yeah but yeah but yeah the idea the the model was a socialist model of of uh, collective ownership, mm-hmm. uh, sharing it, and that they would everybody would sort of work the land and be, right. you know, self-sufficient, yeah, subsistence yeah. farming, community-based subsistence farming, and yeah. all of that. And, and I heard he did the same thing with the with the petrol company. He they, so they nationalized the the petrol company, right. and put in folks who didn't have the skill set. To manage yeah there's a story behind that and it's a good one so so the oil company was actually nationalized in the 70s it was actually run you know the first oil wells and everything were built by foreigners it was i think i think it was bp built the first oil well in 1918 and they taxed them and then they it got nationalized in the 70s so that was not chavez's doing what happened with chavez was since the economy was really based on the oil company and a lot of the oil company executives knew how to run an oil company. I mean, they were foreign trained and they did not, they resented a lot of Chavez's economic policies. They thought this was bad. So they started, they went on strike in an attempt to stage an uprising against Chavez. I'm not saying, um, I am not endorsing this approach at all. I'm just <laughs> saying this is what happens, okay? So they halted the the oil uh, production, halted the oil shipments. 
Then some people came along and said, I've got tankers, I can help you. And then they became, they carried favor with Chavez later on and became a big part of his uh, corruption machine later on. There was a coup against Chavez in 2002, lasted 48 hours. I mean, it has to be one of the shortest. It was really short. It's a squabble. It's a squabble, (laughs) exactly. I mean, I was on holiday when it started. I was still on holiday when it ended. (laughs) And uh, it was, and then after that, he said, all right, you're all gone. And I'm putting my military commanders, because he was, he had, uh, he had led a coup. Uh, Chavez had led a coup, uh, a coup attempt. So all his cronies were military because he mm-hmm. was military. So he said, I'm putting my military cronies to run the oil company. They didn't know how to run an oil company. So their idea was you sell stuff, you take the money, and you spread it around. Line your own pockets, line your friends' pockets, spread it to other people. And then, and so it became one bad financial decision after another. Mm-hmm. And eventually the goose that laid the golden egg, which is the oil started to get sick and is now dying. Yeah. So it doesn't really benefit anyone. It's not, you know, and it's one of the things that would have to be rebuilt. You know, it's one of those, it's one of those things that were, the premise back in the early 90s was understandable uh, where, what it led to was unfortunately probably foreseeable, but most people don't foresee things. Let's speed up to Maduro now. Okay. So uh, Maduro gets into, how did he get into power? We know that uh, Chavez gave his blessing before he died. Yes. That's what I, that's what I understand. And so everyone's like, ah, Maduro's got the blessing. Right. You know, we love him. He's going to be great. Right. (sighs) So you're bringing me to an interesting point that few (laughs) people bring up, uh, which is, um, so we covered about how he's not a legitimate president this time right Mm -hmm. and why because the election was condemned and etc he was not supposed to be president back in 2013 either it speaks to the charisma and the cult of hugo chavez the fact that that happened because when chavez doesn't turn up to be sworn in because his death was announced in march uh 2013 when he does not turn up to be sworn in in january what should have happened according to the constitution which was the one that was drafted under him etc is then the president of the national assembly should have stepped in automatically like we just did with juan guaido and the president of the national assembly at the time was a guy called uh diostello cabello who's very close to Chavez, he's a really, really, really bad guy, military, drug trafficker, sanctioned, just a, a thug, just a, a thug, charmless <laughs> thug, no charisma, never loved by anybody, never mind the people, barely the military. It should have been him who stepped in and then did what the Constitution said was call free and fair elections, mm-hmm. uh, you know, within a certain amount of time, Within a year, you know, it should be within a, within a couple of months, and the leaders of the political parties run. Maduro should not even have been a presidential candidate, never mind be the one who ran, but he was anointed by Chavez. Right. So when Chavez said, <laughs> if I can't do this, you know, if something happens to me, you will elect Maduro, he literally won on the word of on Chavez. On the word of Chavez, which is totally against his own constitution. Totally against his own constitution. Mm-hmm. But people said, well, you know, it's Chavez. Chavez. We understand even if you love him or hate him, (laughs) you know, we all get the charisma. And we all knew that that was not a fight that was going to be worth, that was going to be winnable. Yeah. But, you know, we like to make the point. I'm like, you guys never abided by the rules. Mm. So just like to point that out every now and then. So 
who is who is Kwai though? Um, he he you you hinted at him. Yeah, I just learned that he's thirty five years old. <laughs> I know, it's, it's kind of depressing. I'm like, oh my god, everybody's but, younger than but me. But he's 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 um the favorite here. He's certainly the one that the United States and many allies and many Venezuelans feel like is right. actually the president of Venezuela, <laughs> right? And not Maduro. So tell us who who is Guaido and okay, and what's he all about? What's he all about? So again, he's from a political party called Voluntad Popular which was led, is led by a guy called Leopoldo Lopez, who's actually been in prison for know, five years. Uh, well, I think now he's on, uh, well, he's, uh, no, I know for a fact he's on under house arrest. He got released from a military prison and uh, he's under house arrest, but he, he was very charismatic. But Voluntad Popular is still one of the slightly sort of left wing. And in fact, one of their promises, one of their platform was originally to keep the Misiones set up by Chavez. Mm. Um, I don't, that's no longer economically feasible. Right. But that was in their original political platform. Nobody outside Venezuela really knew who he was. Yeah. So the idea, it has led to the myth of, Oh, he was handpicked by the U.S. That's not the case. Mm. He was well known within Venezuela. He became a student leader, rose up in the student uh, protests in 2007. So in 2006, Chavez closed down a TV station called RCTV, which was the oldest TV station. It was like the biggest, it was like shutting ABC or something, oh right? It was like national, everybody watched it, had the best soap operas, yeah. had been there for, it was like the first, the biggest, <laughs> the one everyone watches TV station because he felt that they were against him. So that was the first sort of brutal um, like act of censorship. People said, oh, you can't close RCTV, although they had already been other acts of censorship. And then, so people took to the streets, basically when their soap operas were canceled. Hey, so Venezuela. sometimes it's the little things that get you motivated to protest, man. Whatever it is. Soap operas, you know, the hair stores closed down, whatever. You never know. Those things matter in life. Yeah, they do. So, <laughs> so you had, and then you had a bunch of students from the Universidad Central de Venezuela, the UCV, the the, uh, the sort of main public university in in Caracas, who that had always been quite lefty, and you know had a lot of sort of communist professors, etc. They rose up and they said, "Hey." We are like this. This is not going yeah. the right direction. Um, so he became a leader of mm. that movement. So he came out of the student movement. He came out of the student movement. Mm. And then he got elected and became a member of, uh, became a community leader and then became elected to the National Assembly. And what's amazing about Guaido is that, as I said, you know, Diostado Cabello is charmless. So is Maduro, utterly charmless. I mean, zero charisma. Yeah. And uh, Guaido has a tons of charisma. And it's the first person we've seen since Chavez. He also is brown-skinned, mm-hmm. um, you know, not as white as the other political opposition Elites. leaders. Mm-hmm. He sounds like them. He's married, you know, to a, a nice guy with his wife, mm-hmm. you know, treats his wife well has a young child uh, just a sort of a few months old and so he's relatable he's relatable he's you know he looks like you he sounds like you he's you know he's got a wife that is like your wife mm-hmm. you know is relatable and is a great speaker and wildly charismatic yeah so it's very exciting uh i mean he's on the other side but yeah well sort of on the other side i mean he's you know as, as i keep saying i mean he's he has called for the unity in the country. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I, want, I hope I, this works. I want to I wanna go to a question that a listener has asked. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Delia from Oakland. Delia wants to know, uh, who's the bad guy 
<laughs> who's I'm the bad who, <laughs> who's the bad guy <laughs> and and what is the deal with the humanitarian aid and uh-huh. why is he blocking the humanitarian aid and i and i'll just to you know add to this so so the background is that we the united states has tried to send aid mm-hmm. to help people because they don't have any food there's right. no medical supplies there's right. nothing right and so the united states has said you know we're going to try to do our humanitarian duty and ship stuff for people to just have their basic needs met. Right. It's been blocked. That's right. Okay. Why? Okay. Why? <laughs> I know. Everybody why? What's right. going on? Okay. Yeah. And it was blocked brutally. I mean, they set of the trucks on fire. They shot Venezuelan people, which is... So the reason why he did that and the reason why the humanitarian aid is such a big deal. So to hear Maduro tell it, they said, well... It's a it's an American excuse to send in military and to uh, to infiltrate, you know, with spies and special ops, and they're gonna infringe our sovereignty. Those of us who are opposed to Maduro, like, dude, our sovereignty has been so infringed. You guys are run by the Cubans, and that's we can get into that later. I mean, you guys don't even you know, you guys don't fight for us. You you're working at the behest of other foreigners. But the reason, the thing with the food is that it's a huge. It serves two purposes for the Maduro regime. It's a form of political control. So the people have gotten so hungry and so desperate that they'll do pretty much anything for a box of food, and. So they, they literally, if you vote for him, they'll give you a box of food, like out, as you leave the, vo- like the, the voting station. Um, and they'll keep track of that. Um, and they will mark your house if you go out against them. There's a new thing, oh, almost, almost like the Nazis did with the Jews. Oh, my God. You know, they're, they're now doing it with uh, opposition. Uh, so you have a form of political control that you want them to stay in power because they're the ones who are giving you the box of food that you can't otherwise get. The other thing that's important here is that that box of food is a huge source of funding for the military. I remember I actually blogged about this a long, long, long time ago, whenever he decreed, which is a couple of years ago now, whenever he decreed that the military was going to be in charge of distributing the food, I thought, oh, here we go. Another form of corruption, yeah. another form of illicit trade, because we already had the military involved in mm. running drugs and running other things. So I said, this is great. So now this is just like be- an extension of their power. This is just an extension of their power. I, I have to ask then, what are the other countries around uh, Venezuela doing? Like, what are other... Because la- if, if America is the bad guy and we're not receiving food, or they're not... Maduro's oh, not Ma- open. Well, to- Ma- America's not the bad guy. Well, Maduro's the Maduro, bad guy. Maduro, well, yeah, well, according to Maduro, according to according Maduro, to Maduro yeah. America is the bad guy, you know, and, and this interventionist country that's mm-hmm. coming to take over. So are the other Latin American countries stepping in to provide aid and to provide, yes. you know, some sort of counter to what's happening? And, and if so, which countries in particular are actually trying to mediate this issue right they are so there's so there's a couple of questions in there like who's actually giving stuff the people who are giving stuff is also colombia and brazil and panama and one of our ambassadors is now in honduras and apparently even honduras has offered to Mm. you know chip in uh you know various countries of the european union are chipping in they're also involved in mediating they have all made it clear that nobody wants to go in militarily 
with into Venezuela. Even the Brazilians, everybody thought, well, Brazil is so um, Bolsonaro, who is very right wing, avowedly right wing, and hates everything Maduro stands for, <laughs> you know, socialism, uh, drug trafficking, thinks that whole thing is a hot mess. Even they don't want to invade that. And there are reasons for that. The terrain is complicated. Brazilian military equipment isn't that good. It would be, it would be a quagmire for them. Uh, but the Latin Americans are now uh, trying to mediate and not just mediate. There are actually, there's actually stronger action being taken about kicking out the ambassadors, canceling visas. Peru has also been helping a lot mm-hmm. and saying, we want you out. We won't. Uh, we're going to freeze your bank accounts. Uh, we're going to cancel your visas and kick you out. And what everybody's trying to do is to get Maduro and his cupola on a plane. Yeah. Like happened in 1958. Be like, look, you, it's, time it's time to go. To go. <laughs> it's time to go. Let us get back to building this country. You guys have. Yeah. I mean, we estimate that according to National Assembly, at least $500 billion has been stolen. You don't even need international aid if you can just get that money back. Yeah. So listen, keep some of that. Enjoy the south of France and let us get on with it. <laughs> but um, <that's- laughs> So we want, we want, and in short, we we want. It was one of my questions: is we, when I say we, the the world collectively, who who is against Maduro, we they just want him out. They want him to go. They want him out, and, and Venezuelans ideally want. And Venezuela, many Venezuelans do. And so now today we learn right that Guaido is back in town. He's home now. I mean, we were weeping with joy because. So what happened was, so the day before the humanitarian, the effort to bring the humanitarian aid into Venezuela got stopped by the Maduro's regime brutality, they, um, he went to Cucuta, Colombia, which is right on the border. And I went there in February of last year, and it was really bad then. And ever since then, it's gotten horribly worse. And because it's a border region where you've always had Venezuela, you have, we, we have, we even call them Venecos, which is like Venezuela and Colombians, because <laughs> uh, you have a lot of people dual nationality. Yeah, it's very yeah, typical yeah. border, right? Um, and they'll cross back and forth. And you'd had people going and crossing the border to either get food and medicine, bring it back to Venezuela or stay in Colombia. So it's sort of ground zero of the emigration crisis. So he went there to see the day before he had the big concert with Richard Branson and, uh, and all these stars. And then like a live aid for Venezuela. And then you had uh, and for the distribution. And then he got sort of caught on that side of the border. And then he decided, well, after the brutality of blocking the aid, he decided to go on a regional tour because they, he was not, Maduro said, don't leave the country. If you do, you'll be arrested if you come back. Because Maduro is like perfectly happy for Guaido to leave right, the country. To go. to go. And so you good luck ruling in exile. That ain't going to happen. So what Guaido did is he went to Brazil, which is the other country that's very affected and also had humanitarian aid on yeah. its border uh, that also got stymied by violence. And then he went to um, Argentina, Ecuador, all of those countries welcomed him as a head of state. So it shows that he's got backing. He's got a crew. He's got a crew. He's got a crew. He's got backing. And also discuss with them, uh, I guess, you know, the strategies for what, sh- what should they do if something happens to him. And also strategies to help the country transition back into democracy. Yeah, yeah. So... Um, so the pressure is definitely ramping up. But when he came in yesterday, 
into, and he had said, I'm going to fly into the main airport, sort of like the equivalent of JFK, you know, and he did. I mean, nobody knew what flight he would be on. It was a great, like, zip-the-lip operation. And then and then went through immigration with his passport. Without a hitch. Without a hitch. Well, there well, were many inter- there were many diplomats, like, from Germany and France and had gone mm. to the airport to receive him. Yeah. So there would be a lot of international witnesses wow. if something happened to him. So with all of that, they let him through. And the immigration officer, they say, the story goes, he said, welcome home, Mr. President. Oh, wow. Wow. So, wow. That's a great way to to sort of transition to the ending of this conversation, which could go on because I have so many more <laughs> questions. But it sounds at least that Guaido is home and he's ready to assume his position as president. Uh, yeah, he is. We still need. Uh, so he's trying to do two things. And one thing he was doing today also is talking with the um, uh, sindicatos, the labor unions. OK, so you want the military to do the right thing and coming back to the Constitution, which is to back him. That's a little complicated because some of them are, are faithful to Maduro. A lot right? of them are Many, faithful to Maduro yeah. for any number of reasons. I'd. And but the government uh, bureaucracy, he's he's saying, look, stop following their orders and come come be with me and we'll help rebuild the country. So it's a strategy of persuasion. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a nonviolent strategy. So so he's doing that. uh, He's doing that today. So how exactly is he going to actually assume power if Maduro is still <laughs> are they going to meet face to face are they going to do a handshake like how exactly I don't know how the, uh, the, the exact details I don't know but it's it's pretty well known now that they are talking like okay. that the Maduro regime is talking to the Americans the Russians are talking to the Americans the Maduro regime is talking to Guaido they're everybody's talking to each other and trying to uh, figure out a nonviolent transition, which is what we're hoping for. I mean, there is still the possibility of violence. There always is in these things. Yeah. Especially what may happen is if they operate like a mafia state, which they do, and if Maduro won't go and the others want him to go, they might take they matters might take into it. his own hands. That's a scenario. Um, but we Venezuelans are nonviolent. We don't, yeah. We just we just want to. Yeah, you just want to eat and and watch soap operas and have have fun. (laughs) So, well, this is the way we end our show with, you know, why does this matter to anybody here in the United States? And you hinted at it a little bit about the diaspora and many Venezuelans are Americans. Right. Um, uh, But why, if you're not a Venezuelan American and you don't know about the Cold War, you don't know about these ideological differences, like why should you actually care about this? First of all, it's a huge human rights issue and it's in our hemisphere. I mean, we have a higher mortality rate than Syria, uh, infant mortality rate than Syria in our own hemisphere, which is shocking. Also in the country that's supposed to be the wealthiest country on earth, we have the most oil of any country on earth. So the fact that you have all of this wealth down below and all this suffering above is something that should concern you as a human being. Also, you know, if you want to be more practical about it, the Venezuelan government under Maduro has become the biggest drug trafficking organization in the world. Mm. It is the biggest transit point. So if you're concerned about drugs entering the U.S., you should not want these guys to stay in power, right? That getting them out is 
going to help. Also, if you're concerned about, you know, Central American migration because of the drug trafficking and the drug gangs and the violence that they're fleeing, that's also fed by these guys. So they're taking the drugs from Colombia, moving them through Venezuelan military aircraft and flying them into Central America and also through submarines and using government shipments to bring them into Europe and to West Africa also and into uh, into Central America and then on into the U.S. So if those horror scenes of Central <laughs> America and you're concerned about the border or you're concerned about drugs. Migration or drugs. Or migration. Yeah. Like this is all. Venezuela is in the middle of all this. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a key. It's a key player in that puzzle. Also, you know, if, if you want to take a different perspective, you know, it's American businesses that have had their properties stolen. American families there that have had to move or, or been killed uh, under the violence. And these are businesses that have been there for 40, 50 years are part of the fabric. They make your breakfast cereal. They make <laughs> the car tires. They make the cars. Yeah. And suddenly they're they're gone, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and they've either been taken over or, or, or been bankrupted. Yeah. So, so there's a number of, of American interests uh, at stake. So, um, the, you know, the, any of those are, are a reason to be concerned. Thank you for that um, breakdown. There's a lot more we could have covered. And I, I really appreciate you making those connections to home and about businesses and, and the migration and drugs. If you care about any of those things, that's the reason why you should care yeah. about Venezuela. Uh, so if you want to learn more about this issue, I'll be posting information on what in the world podcast.com and also on social media. And don't forget, you can also read Vanessa's book. Yay. Blood Pro- Profits, uh, to learn more about the illicit trade, you can listen to this episode on SoundCloud, iTunes, wherever you listen to podcasts. Of course, find me on social media and tweet me. Let me know your questions and your thoughts about what Vanessa has shared with us. Vanessa, every show we end on a happy note because we talk about some yep. heavy things that right. just make us really upset and anxious about the world. Uh, we end with a, a song. Oh, good. So (laughs) what is the song that keeps you in a good mood when you're thinking about Venezuela and you're like, oh, crap? (laughs) (laughs) Set you free. Set you free. uh, Entrance, 1995. Perfect, perfect. It's a, you know, only love will set you free. All right. On that note, thank you so much, Vanessa, for joining us and for sharing all of the knowledge about uh, Venezuela and for the work that you're doing because it's not easy to do in the midst of all of this crazy happening out there. Thank you all for listening to What in the World and stay tuned for our next episode.